Ecclesia is a new church trying to live out the way of Jesus in Princeton, New Jersey. We pray this teaching invites you to love Jesus and people more deeply and to embrace the full life that Jesus offers each one of us. Grace and peace to you. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 17, verses 16 through 34. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he argued in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and also in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Also, some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers debated with him. Some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign divinities. This was because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So they took him and brought him to the Areopagus and asked him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? It sounds rather strange to us, so we would like to know what it means. Now all the Athenians and all the foreigners living there would spend their time in nothing but telling or hearing something new. Then Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription, To an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he who is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. From one ancestor he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth, and he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live, so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him, though indeed he is not far from each of us, for in him we live and move and have our being." even as some of your own poets have said, for we too are his offspring. Since we are God's offspring, we ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of mortals. While God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. When they heard of the resurrection from the dead, some scoffed, but others said, we will hear you again about all of this. At that point, Paul left them. But some of them joined him and became believers, including Dionysus the Areopagate and a woman named Damaris and others with him. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Ryan. Well, if you've ever traveled and maybe you've had a long layover, you get a little bit of sense for what Paul is going through. Now, Paul has been chased from a neighboring town to Athens. And the the thing about Paul is he must have been a really good preacher because angry mobs keep showing up, up where he is and chasing him out of the town. So I think that's how you know you're doing a really good job. So Paul is chased to Athens and he's dropped off by some friends and he's waiting on these other people to pick him up. And, you know, being a good tourist and a curious person, 
Paul travels through the city of Athens and kind of does, he, he does sort of a fact-finding mission, like figuring out what's important to these people. And in verse 16 of the passage that Ryan just read for us, it says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his friends who were going to pick him up, he was deeply distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Now, that's kind of a weird thing for us, right? Because if you were to walk through, you know, at least in Western culture, idols are not something that we're presented with readily. If you're walking down the street, you don't see a bunch of small statues of things that people are worshiping, right? So for us, we immediately are presented with this cultural distance. So we have to ask the question, what exactly is an idol? And do we still have idols in our modern age? Or is that one of those strange cultural relics from a time of superstition? The pre-scientific assumptions of a more primitive people. Now, in many ways, and this is so important as we read the Bible, this book that, that we're reading today, Acts, was written in a different language. It was written in first century Greek. It was written in a common form of Greek. And if you want to know more about the Greek version, you can ask Bryson over there. He's our classic scholar. But understanding that we, anytime we read the Bible, we are presented with a vast cultural distance. We are presented with different assumptions. Uh, just like if you've ever talked to somebody from a different culture, maybe you've asked enough questions, maybe you've been curious enough where you're not just projecting your assumptions onto them, but you're actually listening. And you may have even seen that you see the world fundamentally differently. And so for us today, this is the kind of world that we are immersing ourselves in. And for, for the people of the first century Athens, religion in and of itself was a different thing than the way we conceive of it in our culture. Now, I'm going to nerd out for just a minute. So I'm going to invite you on a little bit of a journey because I think it's really important for us to constantly trace this cultural distance. We, by and large, I, I speak for most of us in here, are products of a Western culture. We have assumptions that are handed to us. The Bible, just amongst many other things, is not a product of that culture. And so for us, we constantly have to be putting those assumptions and those differences up so we can examine them. Now, I think it's really important for us to constantly be tracing that cultural distance. So it'd be easy for us to read this chapter and simply write off the Athenian people as superstitious and naive. They worshiped idols. Well, that's one of those weird things that they did back then, and we don't do that anymore. But what I think is that that lets us off the hook a little too easily, and I think the similarities between our culture and theirs are a lot more uh, prominent than we might immediately expect. So in the mindset of the ancients, religion was not so much about one's personal preferences or belief. Popular religion in the ancient world was largely transactional. Now, gods and goddesses were associated with different cities, nations, or what they promised to provide the worshipers. There were gods that promised fertility. There were gods that promised a rich harvest, uh, good fortune. There were gods that promised that they would ensure the safekeeping of a city. The city of Athens was associated with the goddess Athena. Um, there were gods and goddesses that promised to stave off drought. Additionally, these gods were really easily offended. I recently uh, had the good fortune of traveling to Shanghai. And even in that culture, there is a city god 
uh, to which many of the people, the 27 million people that live there, many of them pay homage. Now, they don't, they don't worship, they don't have this affection for the city God, but they acknowledge the city God. They want to be blessed by the city God. They want the good fortune and the good thoughts of the city God. And so for us, this is kind of the thing that we're beginning uh, to encounter. Now, and that may seem so silly to us, that people describe this kind of power to all these different idols, but it's important for us to, to continually come back to this cultural distance. For those in ancient Athens, the ancient world in our own, for they saw the world as an interlocking sphere. So for us, we think of heaven and earth kind of as these different spaces. And for, for those people who believe, like if you're, you're a Christian maybe and you believe in heaven, the kind of idea that we're told constantly is that, that heaven is somewhere else. That, that heaven doesn't have much to do with earth. But for the ancients, the people here that we're encountering today in first century Athens, they saw this, this unseen spiritual realm and the realm of, you know, hard and fast life of work and school and all those sorts of things as fundamentally interlocking. That these two worlds were uh, fundamentally linked together. And for us, we kind of are the product of a different assumption about that. We're going to come back to that shortly. The philosopher Charles Taylor dubs the society that we're kind of walking into today, this first century Athenian society, he calls it an enchanted world. Essentially, they give credence. They think the things that happen in the spiritual world, the things that happen in the unseen, are just as real as the things that can be measured with our senses. And so for us, we have a very scientific mindset, right? How do you prove something to somebody? Well, you have to be able to measure it. You have to be able to account for it, to experiment, to see it with your eyes or to hear it with your ears, to sense it. But for the people of first century Athens... They acknowledged that there was an unseen world that was affecting and impacting our world, that was interlocking with the world as we saw it. Now, for our own world, we live in what's called a post-enlightenment age. For instance, think about how people used to make sense of things like seasons, sickness, drought, good fortune, and all these previous ages. They attributed these things uh, to, to the gods or to these evil spirits, now, I think that we have to start to unpack that narrative a little bit because there's a commonly spun narrative that essentially goes like this. Because of advances in the sciences, we now understand a cause and effect nature in our universe. We, we see that there is this order that we can almost expect. Like right now, the seasons are starting to unfold. We're starting to see the leaves fall. And for us, we don't really think of that as like this God who's overseeing these processes. It just kind of happens, right? The earth continues to revolve around the sun. The, the, the days get a little shorter. The leaves start to fall down. Bon Iver starts to play, right? Pumpkin spice lattes, all of that stuff, right? It's just magic. It just happens. I know it's Bon Iver, but I can't do it. And as humanity began to understand the order that was woven into the fabric of our universe, we began to be able to explain these natural processes as we developed a microscope to be able to study things that are beyond the human eye's capacity to see, we began to discount spiritual agents to be participants in these processes. Now, this is the, the narrative that's constantly told to us, is that people used to be superstitious, but now, because of advances in the sciences, we now have explanations for these processes. 
But in his book, Charles Taylor, who's this kind of eminent philosopher, we're going to kind of delve into his work just very, very slightly today, not too much, because honestly, he's one of those people you read a page and you're like, I don't know if I actually speak the same language as this man. But what he argues is that narrative, that narrative that there's this break between, oh, people have superstitious assumptions and now we have science, that that narrative really vastly oversimplifies what took place historically. And what that does, too, is it unnecessarily divides the world of sort of theological reflection and scientific exploration. Taylor argues that coming on the, the heels of the Reformation, that the goals of human life began to shift in like the 16th century, 17th century area. That this started within the church, that as the Protestant church began to teach a different um, goal for Christians, for people to live out their lives faithfully, that people began to be less concerned with these sort of like incredibly transcendent things like eternal life, like union with God, and instead began to focus on things that were, in his words, he calls more imminent. The imminent goals of preserving life of bringing prosperity and reducing suffering. So what he's saying is that pre-Reformation period, people were really concerned with their spiritual life and in the sense that it would be this kind of eternal um, definition of what it meant to follow God. And following the Reformation, it wasn't that they were less concerned with God. It was just that they changed what it would look like for them to live a faithful life. And as he says, the goals began to shift to a more um, local, a more imminent kind of frame. And so he says that these goals, preserving life, bringing prosperity and reducing suffering. Now, these are in no way bad in and of themselves. But you can see a shift, and this is the shift I want to trace for us this morning as we get into this passage in Acts. As our goals become more focused on this world, that a reason for reckoning with God can be slowly and incrementally pushed further and further to the periphery. Historically, this paved the way for a kind of providential deism. You know, this is Benjamin Franklin. Like, he thought that there was a God, or, you know, maybe. But that, that God, when he created the world, just kind of wound the world up and said, you know, I put all these processes in place. Now, human beings, go and figure it out. And this is deism. Not that God is this personal being that wants to know you, but that God has sort of formed the world and he's put us in it and said, good luck. That's the best we can do in our, like, our everyday lives is try to live good lives, try to be good neighbors, or in our modern parlance, try to be good people without hurting anybody. And like, again, not necessarily bad things. You might even say that it looks like life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, if that phrase rings a bell. And as the world became more and more again, in Charles Taylor's terms, imminent, the world became what he calls de-enchanted. It wasn't that science began to explain things. David Bentley Hart, another philosopher, theologian, notes, lest we forget, the birth of modern physics and cosmology was achieved by Galileo, Kepler, and Newton, breaking free not from the close confining prison of faith, because all three were believing Christians of one sort or another. Most of the advances in human achievement and scientific exploration in the sense that we should care for the weakest and the poor among us, this sense of justice that we all feel in our society so inherently, most of these things did not come in opposition to the church. It wasn't that people moved beyond the church, but they sprung from the life of the church itself. 
what Charles Taylor and uh, David Bentley Hart are trying to say to us and what we're going to explore today is in the West, our vision for human flourishing has slowly changed over time. From the transcendent, this world where God is God and he is in heaven and he is calling us to this sort of eternal reality, to the eminent. And here's the thing that I want to start us off with today. If our vision has changed, if our vision for what God wants to do in our life has changed, if it has moved from this kind of big eternal reality to this, this closer imminent frame, then isn't it at least possible that our idols have changed too? If our vision for life has become more imminent, has become more something that's in front of us, isn't it possible that our idols have, have followed a similar pattern? And Paul, as he walked the streets of Athens, was struck by the sheer volume of idols. Now, Paul is a man who lived in a society that was under Roman rule. It had this incredible Greek influence. This was not the first time that Paul had been exposed to idols. As a Jewish man, Paul would have constantly kind of had this, this uh, re reflex reaction to idols. But for him in Athens, it's this whole different level. He's like, wow, there are a lot of idols here. And for us, I want to say today that we walk in the same sort of world but our idols are undercover. Because people have a different expectation about God or the God's relationship to the world, our idols have a different cloak that they wear in our world. And so the question I want to begin to, to explore today is how do we begin to identify the idols in our lives? Well, first, I think we have to understand what it means to be human. What is a human being? Well, the Encyclopedia, uh, Encyclopedia Britannica does a masterful job of summing it up. It says, a human being is a culture-bearing primate classified in the genus Homo, especially the species Homo sapiens. Human beings are anatomically similar and related to the great apes and are distinguished by a more highly developed brain and a resultant capacity for articulate speech and abstract reasoning. In addition, human beings display a marked erectness of body carriage that frees the hands for use as manipulative members. I pretty much has it pegged, right? I mean, anybody that ever asked, that's kind of what you've told them. Like, like I'm a little bit smarter than a monkey. Like, ugh, most of us, unless you follow the Florida man on the, you know, on the internets. Oh, but there's actually more. The gap in cognition, as in anatomy, between humans and the great apes, orangutans, gorillas, chimpanzees, and bonobos is much less than we once thought, uh, which I assume is, again, at the advent of the internet. Now, when we ask the question, what is a human, I guess that gets at some of it, uh, but I don't know about you, but that definition leaves me feeling a little bit cold, maybe a little bit judged, a little bit labeled. But you know the incredible thing about a human, the fundamental question that we ask, the fundamental question when we meet somebody for the first time, we're not trying to figure out what they are. We're not trying to figure out, like, what, what are you? What, what's going on here? We're trying to figure out who you are, right? Tell me about what you do. Tell me about how you spend your time. Tell me about your family. Who are you? And the Bible from the very first chapter starts with this profound definition. And Ecclesia, if you are around this church, we will go back to this constantly because it fundamentally forms the way that God sees us and the way that we see other people. It says in Genesis 1, verses 26 through 27, Then God said, Let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness, and let them have dominion upon the earth. 
So God created humankind in the image of God. He created them. Genesis 1 has given us a vision for what it means to be human. We are Every single person, every single one of us, without fail, all of us, made in the image of our beautiful God. Our whole existence is in regards to this God, to be in relationship and communion with God, to work alongside him as he brings order and beauty to the world. And if you look in Genesis 2, the first thing that the man ever says in response to God presenting him with Eve He sees her as God has determined that it's not good for the man to be alone and he makes a woman to be alongside him, to work as an equal and as a partner in this ordering of creation for the two to be of one flesh and to to, to take on different roles in the culture, but to be equal. As he sees this woman for the first time, he breaks out in song. The first word the man says is thank you. At last, hallelujah, praise the Lord. He says, at last, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And if you look at the text, it's indented like it's poetry. The first words that humans speak in all of the Bible are worship. Our thanksgiving, our praise, worship is our native tongue. It is the language of the country that we were made for. Human beings are fundamentally worshiping creatures. So what is a human A human is somebody made in the image of God, formed to be in relationship and communion with God. A human, fundamentally, is a worshiping creature. This is why the great uh, prayer of the Jewish faith, uh, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, hear Israel, the Lord is God, the Lord is one. This prayer daily called them back to this reality. So the question for us, what is a human, doesn't quite do. The question who we are kind of gets closer, but ultimately the question that we are trying to answer as we seek this narrative of Scripture is whose are we? Whose are we? Who were we made by? Who were we made for? And we, like Paul, walk streets every day that are brimming with idols. Now one thing about idolatry, as we'll later see in Acts 19, is that the making and selling of idols is actually a pretty lucrative business right? And we see this in our own world. It just has a different name. The fact that society in Paul's day was based upon the worship of many different gods and that each person needed to have their own household gods was great for business. Now consider our own world. Think about our own reality, our own society. Uh, It's not enough to simply buy what we need, right? Like David Bentley Hart says again about our modern society. He says, late modern society— is principally concerned with purchasing things in ever greater abundance and variety, and so has to strive to fabricate an, even gr- an ever greater number of desires to gratify and to abolish as many limits and prohibitions upon desire as it can. Such a society is already implicitly atheist, and so must slowly but relentlessly apply to the dissolution of the transcendent. So we talked about that word, transcendent. It cannot allow ultimate goods to distract us from proximate goods. Our sacred writ is advertising. Our piety is shopping. Our highest devotion is private choice. God and the soul too often hinder the purely acquisitive longings upon which the market depends 
and confront us with values that stand in stark rivalry to the only truly substantial value at the center of the social universe, the price tag. David Bentley Hart writes a lot of big words, but what he's saying is that our whole world is sort of spun around getting what you want when you want it. Now, we've created a whole economy for this, right? Like Amazon is just like, we are here for you. You want this. You want this now. You actually cannot wait. And so here's a drone to drop it on your head, right? And Luke notes of the people of Athens as we think about the relationship between their world and our own, that people basically sat around discussing the latest ideas. Now for me, if you throw in a good cup of coffee, I got to tell you, first century Athens sounds like it's for me. But Luke is not saying this with approval. He's not saying this is a good thing. He says, think about the parallels for our own world. Think about how much attention, relationship, creativity is lost because people are pulling up the latest ideas, right? And how do we do that? We scroll. We pull down. We get that dopamine hit. It's like, okay, what's going on on Twitter? Okay, what's going on on Facebook? Instagram? Okay, cool. TikTok? Does anybody use that? Weird. Um, And in verse 26... Paul says, as he stands on Mars Hill to the Athenians, that from one ancestor he made all the nations to inhabit the earth. Now, this may sound like a nice sentiment that Paul is saying, okay, aren't we all God's children? But what Paul is doing is something really subtle here. The Athenians were, shall we say, a a little stuck up about their heritage. Even though the city itself was in decline, they wore their Athenian culture as a, as a badge of superiority. They thought they had actually sprung from the soil of Athens itself. But Paul is saying that we are all of one blood, that we are all one people. Now think about our own culture today. The idolatry and polarization of our American political system. People treating individual politicians as messiahs and those politicians readily obliging and saying yes. I am that Messiah. The way that the political conversation has taken on a religious zeal and people fail to see the humanity, much less the well-articulated ideas of those who differ from them. The insidious and evil ideas behind white nationalism that reflect this kind of idea of the people of Athens, that we were born of this soil. Yes, their world might have been different from our own, but is it that different is it really that different? Is the Bible really from this, this culture that cannot in any way penetrate the realities of our modern world? I would say we live in a modern day Athens. And we could spend a lot of time, see what we've done here is we've looked out at our culture and we've seen that there are idols still kind of hovering in the ether. And we could look at the absurdity of it all. This operating system, the obsession with violence, sex, and wealth. We could look without David Foster Wallace says it beautifully. This is in a, um, a graduation address. I don't want to read the whole thing, so I'm just going to read a little bit. If you worship money and things, these things are idols, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. And he says, we, we all know this stuff. And then he says, look, the insidious thing about these forms of worship, and David Foster Wallace was not in, by any means a Christian, is not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they're unconscious. 
They are our default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. And our world will not discourage you from doing so, from operating on your own default settings because the world of men and money and power hums along quite nicely on the fuel of fear and contempt and frustration and craving and the worship of self Friends, we live in an idolatrous world. And in verse 16, it tells us that Paul, as he walked his own idolatrous world, was deeply disturbed by the amount and the volume of idols. But Ecclesia, this is so important for us to realize and to remember. Paul is not agitated at the culture because they are not living up to his standards of conduct and holiness. Paul is not looking at these people, and he will call them ignorant later on. Paul is not looking at them and saying, you should know better. He's not doing that. In 1 Corinthians 5 verse 12, he says, what have I to do with judging those outside? And he's talking about the body of Christ. Paul does not understand his role as an evangelist and as an apostle, as somebody traveling through the streets of Athens, as giving him a right to condemn and to look down upon those who are not apprentices to Jesus. He does not expect anything else from them. But Paul, as he walks through the city, is deeply moved and deeply agitated because he knows that idolatry in and of itself is, as David Foster Wallace told us, it is dehumanizing. It will ruin us because you're worshiping, you're giving that which you were made to give to God, the eternal God of the universe. You're giving it to things that cannot hold that water. You're giving it to things that will leak out upon you and will cost you your life. When we uh, engage in worship to idols, we become like the things that we worship. And so Paul, as he walks the streets, is not agitated because the culture is not living up to his standards. He's agitated because there are lost daughters and sons who are not knowing who they are, not knowing that they were made in the image of the one true God, not knowing that they were called to this life of beauty and purpose and worship. And friends, as we walk our world, the first thing that we should sense is this deep ache. Not because we wish things were different, but this deep ache that people would know who they are. This is evangelism. This is what we'll talk about next week. Ultimately, evangelism is trying to show people, do you know who you are? Do you know that God made you? Do you know that God formed you in the womb? That he so loved you that he gave his only son for you? That's who you are. And Paul, as he walks these streets, is struck over and over again with just the lostness of the world that he walks in. And we could look out and we could name so many things that just are are definitions and markers of our wayward world. But for us, we have to start not by looking out, but by looking in. We have to do introspection before we look at the idols of our culture. Where are the idols in our own lives? You know, Ecclesia, I've been thinking and praying a lot about what this looks like in my own life. As I walk the streets of Princeton, you know, thinking about what, how, can I, how can I change? How can I become a non-anxious presence in this world? How can I become somebody who's so radiant and so loves Jesus and so willing to carry my cross daily that my life radiates with his power and his presence? How do I begin to sacrifice and put away the idols that I have built up in my life? Because when we started this church, we didn't start this church so that we could, you know, have a nice gathering of people in a middle school. We started this church to see revival. 
We started this church to say that God is doing a new thing in our, uh, in our time and in our space in Princeton, and we want to see nothing short of that. I want to see nothing short of renewal coming to people's lives, of people coming to know their purposes of beauty and justice in the world, to, to see miracles. I want to see relationships restored, of new callings pursued, of people healed. But here's the thing. That doesn't start with people outside. That doesn't start with us getting the culture to get on our wavelength or demanding our rights. That starts with the church. Peter says in his letter to the church that it's time for judgment to begin with the house of God. And so this morning, in our idol-saturated world that we live in, I just want to invite you to two examinations as we begin to explore the realities of our own idolatry. The first, examine your attention. This is a good, good question to begin, an examination of the idols that we worship. What is the thing that you wake up thinking about? Mary Oliver's incredible line that I, I know I've quoted a couple times, attention is the beginning of devotion. And this is a clarion call for the world that we live in. In the world of an attention economy, idolatry can subtly erode our time, our presence to God and others, and our gratitude for God to who he made us to be. We live in a deluge of information of truly biblical proportions and we must consciously take refuge in contemplation of Jesus and who he is and who he's calling us to be. Neil Postman in his prophetic work called Amusing Ourselves to Death writes in, in his introduction a contrast between George Orwell's 1984 and Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. How many of you have read 1984? Like how many of you really read it or you were just assigned but by a high school teacher. Okay, cool. Great job, guys. Proud of you. And Huxley, Brave New World? Yeah, yeah, good. So uh, Postman writes about these two books. And, you know, people like that, these two books are about these dystopian futures, about the way the world unravels. And the, that became a very popular genre in our own world. We have the Hunger Games and all those kinds of things. But these two uh, men were writing visions of the future. And Postman writes, he says, in Huxley's vision, no big brother, which is the kind of the boogeyman in 1984, no big brother is required to deprive people of their autonomy, maturity, and history. As we saw it, people will come to love their oppression, to adore the technologies that undo their capacities to think. And this is a great section. I encourage you to look it up. Uh, I'm not going to read all of it, but what he's saying is that our world fundamentally works against our attention spans. It fundamentally works against contemplation of God, of, of drawing near to here. And so the first, as we begin to examine our idols, the first question we need to ask is, what are you paying attention to? The biblical book of Daniel was written to a group of young men who were carried into exile. They were immersed in a foreign culture of idols. Their very presence in Babylon suggested not only that their nation had been defeated, their home had been burned to the ground, but that their God had been overpowered. And at one point, King Nebuchadnezzar makes a golden statue of himself, an idol, and he says, bow down to this. Whenever you hear the trumpet, but Daniel is not paying attention to the culture. He's not paying attention to the, uh, the turmoil around him. Daniel is paying attention to God. Daniel keeps his fixed hours of morning and evening prayer. And listen, Ecclesia, I'm not saying that our technologies, that our phones, our tablets are like little, uh, you know, demon boxes that are, you know, waiting to jump out of you. Please hear me. 
what I'm saying is that our biggest cultural symbol is the phone, right? And so that probably has a lot to say about who we are. Probably is indicative of our society as a whole. And we as Christians have to see that not as something neutral, but as something to be placed under the reign and the rule of Jesus. The turmoil in our society wants to be constantly pointing, like, you know, oh, pay attention to this. Open your news app. Look at what's happening. You should be outraged by this. All this stuff is kind of constantly swirling. They point us in all sorts of directions. And in all of it, it's constantly communicating to us what we lack, what we aren't. And so as we begin to examine our idols, one of the things that we can begin to examine is what are we paying attention to? Second thing. Going back to Genesis 1 and 2, we see that life is a gift. That we are created in the image of God, that he calls it good, and the first word that humankind speaks is a song, a praise, a declaration of the goodness of God. It may seem simple, but when was the last time that you said, thank you? You see, I, I actually don't ask that question to make you feel guilty. You know, when, I, when, I, when my kids, when our kids don't say thank you, I don't, I don't, I'm not trying to say, you need to acknowledge me. You need to, you need to know that your mother and your father have given you this thing. I want the honor associated with that. When I tell my kids, when I correct them to say thank you, I'm trying to form them. I'm trying to form them to be people of gratitude. Gratitude is worship. And if we never stop to be grateful, Aren't we kind of suggesting that we're responsible for the state of our lives? And this works out in two different ways. When things are going good, when, when things are going well for us and we don't stop to give thanks, it can sound as if we did it, that we are completely responsible. We pulled ourselves up by our own bootstraps and we are so good at ordering life that we are so disciplined and so awesome that look at this life that we've made for ourselves. And when things are going poorly, when there's no reflection or reliance upon God, no, no thanksgiving, we can become hopeless with no memory of the way that God has provided in the past and no expectation that we will ever find a way forward. Both limit God to our own abilities and imaginations. Both are idols. But when we give thanks to God, when we turn our posture towards him, we acknowledge that life is a gift. When things are good, when we are in the sunlight of life, we say, God, you are good. And I know that you have given this life to me. When things are going poorly, when things are going bad, we, we live and we immerse ourselves in what Jesus has done, that he has given his life on the cross, that he has gone through death and has come out the other side, that he has completely overwhelmed it, and that even though the days are at their darkest, that there will be a day of resurrection and of life. Friends, much of the anger and the frustration we feel at the state of our own lives, much of the fuel for gossip or selfishness is the product of a subtle idolatry, an extension of worth to something that is not God. Christ on the cross exposes our idols. Idols of self-sufficiency, idols of religion or government, idols of perfectionism, our idolatry of sin that keeps us enslaved, Idolatry does not have to be acknowledged to enslave us. And this is what I'm trying to just pull back the curtain on today is that we live in a world much like first century Athens that is littered with idols. And God is calling us to something so much more beautiful. So what do we do with our idols? 
Paul on Mars Hill bears witness that God has revealed himself fully in Jesus, that there is a way forward, that God doesn't say, hey, what have you been worshiping to make you feel guilty and ashamed, that God says, hey, bring me the things that are breaking you, bring me the things that aren't leading you to the fullness of life that I have for you, lay them at my feet, repent, and you will find life and beauty and a way forward. God revealing himself, revealing our idolatry is not to shame us or to make us feel guilty. He shows us just in the same moment that he shows us our chains, he shows us that he has broken them once and for all, that he has canceled the code that stands written against us. He nails them to the cross. He completely ruins their power. So friends, God is inviting you. He is beckoning you to the fullness of your life. He's not saying, hey, all the really fun stuff's over here if you can just play in this area. He's saying the beauty, the freedom, the truth is all over here. Come for my burden is light. I'll just pray. Beautiful God. Lord, as you reveal to us in the same moment, in the same breath, Lord, where we, where we have put our trust and our hope in lesser things, God, would you show us in that same moment the overwhelming beauty of who you are. God, the overwhelming beauty of your presence, God, that we are no longer slaves to our desires, God, no longer slaves to our past, no longer slaves to generational sin, Jesus, but you have made a way forward. So God, yes, we live in a world full of idols, yes, God, yes, we have participated in in their worship and giving them things that were due to you, but God, you are not a God who leaves us in our shame, God. You come into the middle of it. You take it upon yourself. And so, Jesus, would we see that here this morning? God, that you are inviting us to this deep inventory of our lives. God, not so that we would see how, how broken and how messed up we are, but so we could see how deeply we are loved, God. So Lord, would you break our idols this morning? God, would you break them at the feet of your cross where we all stand? Because as you were lifted up, Lord, you have died once and for all. God, your resurrection power is available to us. And so we say yes to you and no to the things that will uh, dehumanize and will belittle us, Jesus. It's in your name we pray, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information, please visit www.ecclesianj.com.